The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help to start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In this episode, we talk about how Sarah and her husband, Dan, are living out their calling to further indigenous justice on their ranch in Washington, and how a vital resource, water, is being extracted due to the doctrine of discovery. So good morning, Sarah. Hi, Sherry. So you have a story to tell about your ranch in Washington. You have many stories to tell about your ranch in Washington. But uh, yeah, tell us about what is happening right now, which is, you know, you just told me recently, and I was just kind of, as I often am, uh, aghast at what's happening. Sure. Well, I think I'll start by just saying that, you know, Dan and I moved to a cattle ranch. It's 120 acres in 2006. And this ranch is located on the Yakima Indian Reservations. It's the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation. And I think um, in one of our early podcasts, I described how it's possible for non-Yakima people to own land on the reservation. But in a nutshell, I will say here that the Yakima Reservation was settled in a checkerboard pattern to ensure that sort of to limit the contiguous land base of the native nation and that the majority of land is in the hands of non-native producers in what's called fee land. So it's just privately held. And we bought um, 120 acres of fee land, that is to say it had been held um, for generations by producers that were non-native. And we bought this land with the intention of restoring it in compliance with the Yakima Nation's vision for what should happen on their homeland and finding a way to, to return it. And so, so that by the end of our time living here, it would be once again in the collectively held lands of the Yakima Nation. So that was our original intention. And we collaborated with the Yakima Nation Tribal Fish and Wildlife to restore um, the land consistent with the vision, you know, the tribal vision of how the land should be restored. And when I say that, what I mean is the Yakima Nation is a government you know, it's a government structure. They have an agency that's Fish and Wildlife, and Fish and Wildlife is also trying to restore sections of collectively held land. And so we cooperated with them with our restoration plan. So the place that we bought, it was a conventionally operated beef ranch. So um, it's 120 acres, deed acres with a couple parcels of lease, um, 80 acres in lease, land that's leased from the Yakima Nation. And it had been under intensive cultivation for, 
I want to say about 100 years, 80 to 100 years. And when I say that, what I mean is intensive um, productions, constantly in production. It's receiving a lot of irrigation, so constant irrigation, which is really hard on soils, and use of pesticides and herbicides to raise um, grass, but also hay. And so when we took over the place, it, it was it was exhausted. I mean, it, it had it had depleted soils and from erosion, or erosion occurring from um, constant water. So in, in the valley where I live, you know, the irrigation is run by Wapato Irrigation Project, which is run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So it's a federally managed um, irrigation system. Water is available in the spring and you can use that water 24 hours a day until the water is shut off in the fall. So six months of um, delivered water. And so, you know, if you water land intensively like that, it's, it's really hard on the soils um, because a lot of the nutrients are leached away from that constant um, water. So um, what we did is we worked together with the tribe to restore our little ranch to native grass. Um, so we basically it was native grass, forbs, and shrubs. And um, we spent time trying to identify which plants were native to the area and would be able to survive in the region. So for example, in our region, we get just about seven inches of precipitation a year. It's very dry, fair amount of riparian zone, which is sort of the, the filter between the river and um, dry land. So that's where you'd think of as being, you know, cattails and more swampy areas that they have ponds in the spring and then it dries out and so on. So that's what the land was like originally. Of course, it was all drained and then irrigated. And so we were working on, you know, restoring wetlands. And we worked with Fish and Wildlife in part because we were, as part of our conservation goals, we wanted to restore water, but we also wanted to restore habitat. So we wanted to make it possible for um, wildlife to live in this ranching operation where we would raise um, beef cattle. And so we have done that. We've restored really 200 acres of wildlife habitat, and we have all manner of animal community living in this ranch, and that includes raptors and small mammals and all kinds of animals live there. In an area um, in our valley, there's intensive cultivation on the reservation and in the whole valley, and so there's depleting wildlife area in the valley. So that was part of our conservation goal is to restore habitat, but also to restore native plants, um, some of which are significant culturally. That would include elderberry, chokecherry, serviceberry, um, plants that have been used by the native people, the Yakima people historically, and that includes wapato and other roots. We planted also about a thousand trees, native trees that would hold the soil in areas um, where there are draws or where there's water berms that were being eroded, we planted trees to hold hold the soil. So we did that all consistent with the vision of the Yakima Nation Fish and Wildlife. Our plan was a conservation plan to sort of marry conservation and production. And this is consistent with the integrated and collaborative approach that is common in many areas of the United States and also in many areas of the Pacific Northwest 
where there's an emphasis on trying to conserve um, soil and water resources rather than just to get as much as you can out of a plot of land and then deplete that land and move on. Which might I just add is the definition of extraction. Right, exactly. Anytime you extract anything, it means that you're just taking and not doing anything to give back so that there's a, a sustainable way of maintaining that resource. It's extraction just means taking without giving, basically. I just want to say mm-hmm. that because some people don't know what extraction is. Well, yeah. And I think extraction, you know, the way we think about it, Dan and I, and we've worked, of course, in mining and uh, mineral extraction. So often people think about mining or, you know, extracting oil, but extraction is also a process, just as you're sh- saying, Sherry, in agriculture. It is possible to completely deplete ag land and so that, you know, large producers can do that. They can just, you know, lease or buy land, deplete it over a decade or two decades, and then move on to the next next piece of land. And so, and when we moved on to our place, it was very much, you know, in a depleted state and we worked to restore some of the natural processes and really focused on soil conservation. And this is really consistent with what's called the Yakima River Basin Water Enhancement Project, which has been in place for a long time. There have been parties who have been working together to try and understand how they could do conservation um, in in Washington state, mainly because over 100 years ago, 150 years ago, when the regulations were created about how agriculture is going to work in Washington, it seemed that all resources were, um, you could not deplete them. They just seem so abundant. And so, but we know now that's not the case. And so this um, Yakima River Basin Water Enhancement Project, which is a collaboration between all different kinds of sectors, production, farmers, um, also conservation, the tribe, cities, and um, counties, they were working together to try and conserve or to collaborate and cooperate to figure out how they could use the resources more efficiently. And so this integrative plan was ultimately codified into law in 2019 in what was called the Dingle Act. And so that was came into law on March 12, 2019. And so the purpose there is for conservation, management, and recreation. It's called the Conservation Management and Recreation Act. And this integrated plan was, was legalized for Washington State during 2019. We were doing that in collaboration with the tribe, but it really fit in with this larger collaborative process in Washington state. And of course, the the Dingle Act is actually a federal law, but that federal law took into account more than 50 localized projects across the country integrating conservation. Restoring our place, though, was not free. It was quite expensive, and we used our own money to do that. The cost to integrate conservation and production for our family was approximately $1,000 an acre or $120,000 approximately. And and we took a a mortgage to do that work. We conserve 40,000 acre feet of water, which is like, oh my gosh, what is an acre foot? Basically what it means is where an acre foot is one foot of water over an acre of land. So we conserve more than 40,000 acre feet, which is 2% of the basin conservation goals. So 2% of the goals of the Yakima River Basin Water Enhancement Project, just on our little place, which mm. I think is a lot. That's a lot. And so um, there is a cost to maintain the water rights. So we do have junior and senior water rights, and we pay approximately $8,000 a year in operation and maintenance. 
And so we also pay a mortgage for the conservation costs of about $11,000 a year. You took out a mortgage to do the conservation and you're, okay, I get what you're saying. You're saying that mortgage on that conservation work is $11,000 a year. Yeah, that's right. And um, we pay about $8,000 a year in operation and maintenance of the water. And so when we originally were, were, were investing in this, in this restoration plan, we're working with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the superintendent at the time, and talking about this plan to conserve water because we felt if we were conserving this water, we should not have to pay for water. I mean, we're right. not using it. And we also did not want to lose the water rights And so there are ways that other districts do this, other water districts. And what they do is, you know, the the people that are members of the district can lease their water to each other, sort of a a trade or swap arrangement. And that's all allowable, but it's not allowable on the reservation where water is managed by um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, and I want to be really clear about that. The Bureau of Indian Affairs was created to act as the custodian of American Indian nations it was created with the intention of open and complete access to resources and no accountability. So unbridled use of resources. And so that is, from my point of view, exactly how the BIA continues to function. Their, their, their job is to, from my point of view, deliver resources, in this case water, to the large producers on the reservation, regardless of what that impact is. And so the BIA is basically, as just let me see if I can get this. The BIA is basically governing the use of water on the mm-hmm. reservation yeah. and, and can dictate that, no, even though other places in other water districts, people can decide to lease to each other and share water rights. We're not going to allow that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we make the rules. You play by our rules kind of period. Yeah. And so we had arranged with the, with the superintendent at one time that, that we would get a waiver. We could apply for a waiver and we would not have to pay our water bill All right. because we were investing in conservation and had invested quite a lot of money in conservation consistent with this um, basin plan. And so what happened was when he retired, I think we got waivers for a couple of years, like 2017 through 2019. But when, when he retired, the Bureau of Indian Affairs said, no, we're not doing that. That's not allowable. And, um, we are going to come after you basically for, you have to pay your water. We said, look, we invested a huge amount of money in conservation and we've been a good partner and we're continuing to, to move forward with having an integrated branch and, you know, we've talked with with everybody at every level. We've talked to agencies at every level, all the way up to the federal appointee, and we've heard, "No, you don't have the right. We're we don't have to let you, and we're going to, you know, we're going to come after you." And actually, Dan, my husband, Dan, Social Security is garnished for water. And so, meanwhile, the Wapato Irrigation Project, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They received $75 million from the Dingo Act um, for infrastructure. 
And we cannot really identify how any local producer receives any benefit from that for conservation. So the $75 million from the Dingle Act was given to the Bureau of Indian Affairs to basically work on water conservation. That's right, conservation. You know, and originally the BIA granted us water waivers, and it seemed like this is a good example of collaboration that fit the goals of the basin plan. You know, given the amount of time, energy, and money that we've invested, we started restoration in 2006. So a lot of time. By, the, by 2016, we were seeing the, the fruit of, of what we had invested in that. There was a drought, and we had access to water that we didn't need. So wow. water was being rationed at that time. And so we could use water. We were two days on and one day off or something like that. And our neighbor had corn. And so we said, well, you know, why don't we just arrange for, you know, we'll close our gate and you can have that water at that time and we can work out an agreement. And Wapato Irrigation Project said, no, you can't do that. We won't do that. And we're like, why not? He's on the same gate. I mean, he's just right there. Why can't he have our water? And um, they just said, no, we won't. We won't do that. His corn died, which led to a lawsuit. You mean he sued? You mean he sued yeah, this BIA-run exactly. water? Uh-huh. Wow. Um, and he could have easily leased our water, but the BIA couldn't or wouldn't um, go through with that um, when all that was required really was to close our gate and open the neighbor's gate. So this idea that we could collaborate and find a way to share resources more effectively is completely off the table. So in fact, um, when Dan talked to the regional manager, whose name is Jeff Harlan, he said, I don't care about conservation. My job is to deliver the water to you and what you do with it is up to you. I'm a bureaucrat and I don't care what you do with it. My job is just to deliver water to your gate. And so Dan asked him, so you mean I could take that water and, you know, have a, a fish pond with a fountain or I could, you know, create a, like a little water park on my place? And he's like, yep. It's up to you. I don't care what you do with it. But the weird thing is, is that you actually can't do what you want with your water because you couldn't <laughs> give it to your no, neighbors. Right. But see, this is the whole. This is the whole thing. I can. We can do whatever we want with it ourselves. We are not. There is no opportunity for collaboration <laughs> whatsoever. And the manager, wow. actually, of the Yakima Basin Water Enhancement Project, her name is Gwendolyn Christensen, said that the BIA has not bought into the conservation part of the basin plan, to which we asked well, what other part of the plan is there? I mean, it's a conservation plan. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is the Bureau of Indian Affairs supports unbridled use, complete access to all resources with no accountability. And this is a legacy that has to be um, reversed. I mean, this is consistent with the doctrine of discovery in that the doctrine of discovery was created to dictate who had the right to own and improve land and who didn't. And so all tribal lands, I don't know if people understand, are owned by the federal government and held in trust for native people. So the BIA actually is the, you know, the legitimate, I, I don't know, owner is not the right word, but the person who has the right to control these lands. And, you know, the tribal people are just the, the beneficiary and so from my point of view, I, I, when I see something like that in order, I ask myself, who's benefiting from that? Who is benefiting from that? And the answer, you know, in my mind, from my point of view, is large-scale producers who are there to um, use as much as they possibly can 
um, with as little regulation as possible. Right. So I just wanted to say, restate something you said, because I think it is so important. So the BIA basically, I'm wondering if it's a similar arrangement that some of us might be familiar with where maybe you're uh, a person who has been given a trust by, let's say, your parents, but that trust is actually being managed by an executor because you are not seen for whatever reason as being able to access that trust without this person basically saying, well, you can have this, but not this. Um, Is that what you're talking about? So BIA basically holds the lands and the resources on the lands and trust Mm -hmm. and gets to make decisions about how the land and those resources are used. And they have the the authority to just reject laws that are in operation. So the rest of the state will be complying with different laws. But the BIA, they do what they want. And they they just don't, they, they are sort of the final authority. And that's legal for them to basically, they don't have to follow these other laws. I'm not saying that. I, I'm, I think they should. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'd have to test that in court. Right. They don't. Right. Let's put it that way. They don't. And and this is very, very much a product of the doctrine of discovery. I mean, that's right. what the doctrine of discovery is. Laws and policies put in place to remove Native people from their lands and to serve the people who are extracting resources from them. Right. The extraction of water, irrigation water from the reservation and serving large producers is not in the best interest of the Yakama Nation. The BIA is the custodian of tribal lands and they're squandering water resources with the purpose of unbridled use and delivery to water right holders who are primarily settlers. And I guess what I want to say here is the doctrine of discovery, it's wrong for everyone. It's not good for anyone, even those large scale producers, because right. water is a finite resource. Right. Um, and there's, and especially with climate change, there's just simply not enough of it. Um, although water was viewed historically as, as limitless, it's not limitless. It is limited and has to be budgeted for the sakes of everyone. Yeah. Um, so the laws that result from the DOD are out of date and in other districts, in other water districts, there are partnerships that work, but not in the area where we live that's managed by the Wapato Irrigation Project. So from the BIA's point of view, Bureau of Indian Affairs point of view, any water that is unused is redistributed exclusively to users. And that's an extractive model. So let me put that another way. Whoever has water rights, um, whatever water we conserves, we're, we're not using water. We don't use any water at all. We don't use any hmm. irrigation water at all. Wow. And that water that we conserve, it is redistributed exclusively to other people who are irrigators in, in our area. So it cannot be conserved for uh, the health of the river or for it can't be used to conserve fish or habitat restoration or anything. Wow. And in other areas of the state, according to the basin plan, water can be conserved for fish habitat restoration. It's collaborative and integrative, but you know what? The BIA doesn't have to do that, and they don't. Wow. So really, there's no, I mean, I hate to put it this way, Sarah, but there's no water being conserved as a result of all your efforts. No. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy.
Yeah, and we're expected to pay for all of it. So we're we're paying, wow. we're expected to pay $8,000 a year for water and eat the $125,000 plus interest that we've spent in conservation. Basically, small producers like us are punished for trying to do integrative collaborative work. You're basically punished for conserving water. Yeah, and working with the tribe to do that. Wow. That's just crazy. So the BIA model is using the land to maximize um, feed, fuel, and fertilizer. I'm talking specifically in beef production. That's the idea is to maximize feed, fuel, and fertilizer. And, and this is what I mean by that. Why would you want to maximize feed? Because it's a it's a vertically integrated system, right? So you want to... Any piece of land should be maximizing the outputs. So you want to have the largest number of animals that you can have on there, even though we know that's hard on land. We want to maximize the amount of feed that we're producing in hay or grass. We want to maximize the amount of fuel that we're going to use, the amount of fertilizer we're going to put on. We're going to intensively cultivate this land, even though that we know that fertilizer has a depleting effect over time. And so um, that's the model. That's the model that the BIA is using. Right. So if you're if you're not wanting to follow that model and you're like, no, we want to like try to not use fertilizer because we know how bad it is, but that will mean that we're not going to have as many head of cattle on our land or then you actually get punished for that or dinged for that. That's right. We have been punished. In fact, when we first started producing, we had a USDA new farmer loan we're part of that program. And eventually we lost our funding because they were insisting that we produce larger amounts of cattle. And we said no, because they're not consistent with our conservation goals. And we can pay our bills with the amount that we're raising now. And so eventually they withheld funding and said, nope, um, if you will not agree to basically use, from my point of view, a feedlot model, intensive cultivation, where you have high numbers of cattle on land, then we're not going to um, provide, um, you know, basically it was uh, a bank loan to operations loan. Right. And so, you know, we said, okay, to that, we're not going to, we're not going to do that because um, what it would do is just, it would undermine all the conservation efforts that we had made to put, you know, a maximum number of cattle on our field. And that's not, that's not an integrated approach. It's not consistent with the rules of the ecology where we live, you know, we have, in order for us to raise cattle, we have to do that in a way where the land is able to rest and where we can um, be careful about using soil and water. And so, um, you know, fertilizer, another thing about fertilizer is that it leaches pollutants into the water table, yeah. you know, which is bad for everybody. And we yeah. just said, no, we're not doing that. We're going to have an integrated model that is conservation-based, consistent with the priorities of the Yakima Nation. Yeah. And so even though intensive cultivation leaches the soils in the long term and burns through land resources, that is the model of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and so our model has actually been called innovative by the manager of the basin project. We've increased plant and animal diversity, even restoring some endangered plants that have returned to the land. But innovation is not what's supported by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Their approaches to improve the infrastructure of a system that wastes water, 
and um, so that they can just waste more water more efficiently, which is really too bad. And, and you know, we think that um, small producers like us are punished. You know, there's, there's no incentive um, to engage in conservation at all. No, and so, there's disincentive. You know, you know, there's yes. disincentive to do it. There's disincentive. You know, there's disincentive to do it. Yeah, our ranch could serve as a case study. It's small and intelligible or understandable, but in, instead it feels like a cautionary tale to others who may want to live in harmony with tribes um, and um, address new and emerging needs related to climate change, you know, because people who are doing what we're doing, or I don't know anybody else, but I'm sure there are many others, um, are just going to be punished yeah. Um, and, and the people who benefit are, you know, all the water we conserve goes to large producers so right. they can just use more of it. Yeah, I know. It's that's the thing that I is so maddening to me that you're achieved on all this work to do the right thing. And basically all your water is just going to large producers who are depleting the soils and poisoning the waters and, you know, with the style of agriculture they're practicing. And it's 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 the definition of crazy. Well, it is. And I guess, Sherry, you know, what I wanted to say, too, is that, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, the doctrine of discovery, it's happened a long time ago. And, you know, what could we possibly do about it now? And what I want to do is just illustrate in all these different ways, you know, the way this is impacting my life today. Yeah. You know, this is the law of the land. The Bureau of Indian Affairs has the ability to do this on tribal land, regardless of what the damage is. That's what they're, they're, they're in charge. And, and that, you know, has to be dismantled. That has to change. This can't be, you know, and I think it's not abstract. And I think at times it feels abstract and it isn't, you know, the ability of native people to, to have self-determination is deeply undermined, um, by this arrangement. And, you know, I was in tribal consultation last week with folks, leaders in the Yakima nation. And one of the leaders told me, you know, I am, I'm expected to, to comply with laws that are 150 years old while other people are allowed to, to interact with innovation and things that have changed and have improved. And I'm stuck with the laws that are 150 years old. Right. So you, you're talking, I think, about that basin plan where it, there's some innovation happening there where conservation and other things are being rewarded. But because you live on a reservation with the Bureau of Indian Affairs as sort of the <laughs> overlord is maybe a strong term, but I'm going to use it. You can't you, you're interacting, as you said, with 150 year old laws. Well, right. That's what I'm saying. But I think what this leader was saying is she's in every venue. Yeah, right. Okay. She's stuck with laws that are 150 years old and others, laws move on and they grow and they evolve. Right. But she's stuck with a code that's 150 years old because it's run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Wow. Isn't that unjust that there is an agency that is 
you know, the acting custodian of sovereign people. It's so patronizing and unjust. I mean, the fact that that is even just the word custodian, like like Native peoples need to be have a custodian. I've been working on the doctrine of discovery for a long time with you, Sarah, and I know it's it's like hitting me in a way it hasn't before of just how wrong and unjust that is. Yeah, and I guess I would just remind you know our listeners that this is codified in the Constitution. You know, I mean, this is the fabric of our of our society, and it's affirmed again and again by the Supreme Court that this is the law, and therefore defines reality for Native people in the United States. Well, Sarah, thank you for being willing to get, you know, into the weeds like this. I, I have experienced, <laughs> no, I mean, it's really helpful because I think it's like, it is in the weeds, almost literally, <laughs> in, our, in the case in what you're yeah. just talking about. It is in the weeds where all of this is playing out. And I, I think that, you know, and you've done this for me and talking about Suriname and how the Doctrine of Discovery is playing out there in terms of you know, development projects. Um, you have a whole chapter in your book. I think it's chapter seven, if I'm not mistaken, where you really get into mm-hmm. the weeds with that. And I think it's so important because that is where this is happening in these very concrete ways that people like me are completely oblivious to. Like, yeah, like there's no way in which in my normal run-of-the-mill life, I am going to come across the way things really work, the way you experience them there on your ranch on the reservation. Yeah, that's right. And I appreciate that, Sherry. And I think maybe the last thing I want to say is that it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. You know, the people who created this, we can do something different. You know, we are as smart as they are, Sherry. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are alive today can do something else. We do not have to do this. This is not the way you know, it has to be, I mean, this is just, uh, it's unjust and it doesn't have to be this way. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that gives me hope is sort of thinking through people everywhere here in the U S and then around the world who are just trying to create their own systems and saying, you know, these, these systems that were put in place are wrong and we're just going to, we're just going to do something else. You know, I don't think we have to just accept this and say, this is the way it is. Right. And I think of all the different social movements in our country that have not accepted that. That's mm-hmm. how they have worked, you know, from yep. um, women's rights to uh, African-American rights to uh, many, many social movements that said these laws are unjust and they have to be changed. Exactly. And, uh, and I feel really good about doing that together. And I feel really good about bringing this message to the church because I think Together, we can imagine a different world, you know, the kingdom of God together. Well, mm. amen to that. Support for this podcast comes from Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. Bethany offers in-person and distance learning options and generous financial aid so that students can answer a call to ministry and service without taking on additional debt. Students choose from a variety of graduate certificates and degrees, including the brand new Master of Arts in Spiritual and Social Transformation, combining faith formation with professional growth. Learn more at bethany.edu slash M-A-S-S-T.
This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Audio editing was done by Shannon Kaler. And theme music by Micah Peplo and Shannon. Thank you. Thank you.